Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In our episode today, we feature the music from the 2013 film The Book Thief. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. John Williams was back to World War II with his only score for 2013, The Book Thief. The movie is not as grand in scale as other World War II films he has scored, focusing solely on a young girl's life in Germany during the war. And John Williams responded to that compact story with a score that is a slight departure for the maestro, though fans will recognize many of his touches throughout the score. I'm very happy to be joined by David Kay for this episode. This is David's third co-hosting gig on The Baton, having previously discussed the music for E.T. and Jurassic Park. Welcome back, David. I'm honored to be here for the third time, Jeff. So the last two scores we discussed together on the show are radically different from the music we're going to be listening to today. What compelled you to want to talk about this score? Yeah, great question. Um, Because I completely agree, the book thief, both the film and the score exist in a different universe than E.T. and Jurassic Park. I think one of the things that attracted me to Book Thief was that it feels like a particularly intimate score for Williams. Unlike most of the scores he was doing at the time, he presumably didn't just do this because he knew the director behind it or had some historic affiliation with the franchise as he was doing for for Star Wars. Uh, And as an 81-year-old composer at the time, I imagine he felt the message of the film and the score felt relevant. And I know we'll, we'll talk more about that later. The announcement that John Williams was be handling the score for this film threw a lot of film score enthusiasts for a loop. That announcement was made in August 2013, just as Williams was finishing up work composing the score. At this point, everyone knew that Williams was going to write the music for the upcoming first film in the Star Wars sequel trilogy, but that wasn't coming out until 2015. And since Williams had been working exclusively with Steven Spielberg since 2005, there seemed to be nothing new on the horizon since Spielberg appeared to be taking a little break. You're absolutely right, Jeff, uh, that it was a complete surprise when it was announced that Williams would do this score. It's one of those moments where I remember exactly where I was when the news broke, and how lucky I felt that we'd be getting a new John Williams score in just a few months. And just as a side note, really quick, Spielberg dropped out of directing the film American Sniper around this time, giving the job to Clint Eastwood. Now, Eastwood rarely puts music in his films, or when he does, he decides to write the music himself. So the possibility of Williams staying with the project after Spielberg left was not likely. But I have always wished that Eastwood would hire Williams to write music for another one of his films after Williams did so well with the Eastwood-directed The Iger Sanction back in 1975. To this day, I still wonder what Williams would have done with Unforgiven in 1992 instead of Lenny Niehaus. But Lenny Niehaus had already established a collaboration, and that was probably not going to be broken. So Williams was free to take on any assignment that was open to him after Lincoln. And that's when a best-selling book by Marcus Zusak was introduced to him, called The Book Thief. As was the case with The Accidental Tourist and Memoirs of a Geisha, Williams fell in love with the story, and when the movie was in early pre-production, he made sure that his name was a part of the conversation. 
The Book Thief tells the story of Liesel, a girl who is sent to live with a childless couple in a small German town just as the Nazi party is rising and about to start World War II. In addition to telling the simple story of Liesel's path to literacy, it also tells of a friendship she starts with a Jewish man named Max, who hides in the basement to avoid death at the hands of the Nazis. Brian Percival was hired as director of the film adaptation of The Book Thief. This would be Percival's second theatrical feature film, having earned a lot of success the previous two years for directing episodes of Downton Abbey. He won an Emmy for directing one of those episodes, making him a hot commodity. And this was the first time that Williams would be working with a new director since collaborating with Rob Marshall for Memoirs of a Geisha in 2005, and apparently the two hit it off, according to an interview Williams gave shortly after he finished recording the score. And I met with Brian Percival, who I also found illuminating in his ideas about it and his approach to, to, to the film he wanted to make. And I thought that essentially the music would be, could be, uh, about those notions that the film addresses and could have a, have a lyricism that could be set in front of or above or beneath the hard realities of people suffering in the war, of death all around them, of bombs exploding and so on. I mean, there are scenes where we see that, but where the, where the role of the music is to provide a, 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 a lyrical uh, uh, brush, uh, uh, taking us emotionally out of this reality and, and the literal uh, circumstances that we find ourselves in, into uh, uh, areas where we will think about survival and hope and, and better things, like reading and writing, for example than throwing bombs at each other. I found it irresistible. Brian Percival has said to me he wanted to make a small film, and I, and I just said that I didn't think in that respect he'd been successful, that it's really a big film, and that it has a heart as big as this building we're in, and a power and a force that's delivered quietly, uh, but nonetheless with great power. We heard from John Williams about his thoughts about the score to the book thief, and we're so honored to have had the chance to talk with director Brian Percival on The Baton today about his experience of working on the film and collaborating with John Williams. So Brian, it's great to have you here on The Baton. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the director of The Book Thief, I really can't believe I'm speaking to the director of The Book Thief and someone who has actually worked uh, personally with John Williams. Uh, it's been seven years since you made The Book Thief. Uh, what memories of that experience stand out to you right now? You know, I've been doing, up until that point, I've been doing sort of high-end costume dramas and things in the UK. Um, and normally what happens when we come to score a piece is myself and the editor will tempt something up normally using music from uh, from what the composer we've chosen, what their back catalogue, just to get, because we've chosen that composer because he's right. Um, and and probably this, the most powerful memory I've got, John, is we then, we then normally get a, a, we get a cut back, our first cut back, uh, with some music ideas from the composer. Temp tracks, just something that we can discuss or say it's right or it's maybe this way, that way. And John, could, John doesn't work that way. And John could see that I was a little bit 
not necessarily not worried because it was John Williams for God's sake, but um, but I was I, didn't, I wasn't used to working this way, but I don't hear anything at all. And I have heard in the past that sometimes directors, even Steven Spielberg, had, had not heard a score until they actually come to record it. Um, so John could see it was a little bit concerned about what we were going to actually do. And, and so we were in we were at the studio, I think, in, on the Fox lot. And John said, well, look, I tell you what, come back to my house and I'll just play you a few things on the piano because I don't record anything. And I was like, well, yeah, okay. So then I'm sitting, <laughs> I find myself sitting in John Williams's lounge, I guess. Um, with all these photographs with Obama and everybody else that like, you know from America's finest. And uh, and then he sits me down on, the, on, a, on a chair next to one of his two Steinways and begins to play the theme to the book, Thief. And I just sat there and thought, how the did I ever get here? I'm sitting in a room with John Williams, uh, Williams and he's playing the piano for me. So it's like... Well, and it was beautiful, I have to say. So, from once we knew that uh, that first piano riff, that's that was the theme of of, of the film, if you like. Um, then I was unbelievably happy, <laughs> and and it just went through. And he went, he then went on and played a few other pieces. But the actual is probably my greatest memory of my time over there was to to be alone in the room with the great man. And him just playing the piano for me. John Williams was like God. And sometimes if you watch those films back now, and you're really on the edge of the seat, but it's actually John's score that's doing it. You know, Stephen would sometimes just hold on a white chest of an aeroplane. I think it was in, uh, was it Raiders? Um, where there's just a wide shot of an aeroplane going around. And it's quite a tense scene, but it's the scores working so hard. And I never realised until I worked with John just how emotionally he leads you through something which visually if you stripped all that away it's beautifully shot but it doesn't have the dynamism that you get and, and the emotional infection that you get from 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 watching it with john score and then going back to your time on the set I mean, you talk about the great thing of being working with john williams but being able to work with oscar winner jeffrey rush and and Emily Watson, who had been nominated for Oscars and was very well known around the world. I would imagine having those two actors on the set had to make your job extremely easy. Um, well, yeah, of course it does, because, um, you know, they're both terrific actors. I, probably the reason, the reason I, I wanted to, to direct initially, because um, I started off making commercials, was because of seeing a film, I don't know if you were, of called Breaking the Waves, the Lars von Trier film. And that's Emily's first film, and I think that's what she was nominated for. And I saw that film, late 90s, I think, and went, okay, now that's what I want to do. And so I've been a huge fan of Emily's ever since. And of course, Jeffrey's terrific work over the years. It does make it easy in one way, but in another way, it can be difficult because, um, you know, they're both incredibly intelligent well-crafted actors and we always agreed we never disagreed about anything that's fine but you know um the strong personalities sometimes need um a gentle hand i find uh and we, was, we were lucky because 
you know, Emily would have been my first choice anyway. Um, and I was so lucky to get those two together because they'd worked together before. And we really did have a, 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 a great sort of working relationship. And I think that showed on screen too. Um, but, you know, we were working with someone who'd, who'd really, in Sophie, really who's the star of the film, who'd done... She'd done some television work, um, but but not you know not many not much in the way of feature films, and she in a way had to carry that film. And she was thirteen years old. She's French Canadian, so she didn't. She her English wasn't great to begin with, let alone English with a German accent. So um, it was the whole experience was great, but it, you know there was there was lots of things involved. There was lots of potential pitfalls there that we were lucky enough that we you know we got through it uh going back to the music um what was before you knew that john williams would be involved how were you thinking about approaching that aspect of the film were you considering other composers did you have a, a specific approach in mind um approach perhaps yeah i, I never approached another um, composer because as soon as we talked about it uh we knew that John had read the script and may be interested, um, you know, subject to a conversation. I read the screenplay and I think it had been around for a few years and they couldn't get it off the ground. And it just completely blew me away. I've always had this thing that I wanted to make a movie, an American movie, um, but it had to be the right one. And it's quite difficult to find something that the studios make that, um, if you like, is in some ways it was closer to an independent film than it is to a studio film in the, in the themes that are covered. And I don't, I don't, I'm not altogether sure that film would be made now. I think that might appear on Netflix or, but I don't think it would be a cinema release with a reasonable budget. And, um, and so I, I just connected with it completely. And that wonderful producer, Karen Rosenfeld, um, we were talking about music and I had to make this film. I just had to do it. And thankfully she, she trusted me with it. Um, and she said, John Williams had read it. And I was like, no, really? Yeah. And it, it touched John too. Uh, apparently he had the same emotional connection that I had. Um, and it was just something that he felt he wanted to do. And, and you just cannot imagine that for one moment, you might even get to meet the man, let alone work with him. You know, it's just like, <laughs> but he was, and, and we and we met and we got along really, really well. And it was probably the most fantastic experience I've ever had, you know, um, to work with one of the greats, the great probably, I'd say. Yeah, um, the great, uh, there's no argument. The great. Uh, <laughs> and, and you know, it's, um, I'll tell you a little bit more later about, you know, the experience of it, but just initially to know that, he'd be even interested in doing it with, you know, it was, this would be my first American film. So that's an awful lot of trust for such a great man to put in a relatively unknown director in that sense. Right. Um, but he liked my vision of it, I think, and we got along really well. And I think creatively we saw eye to eye. So hence, here we are. It needed it needed a few things. It needed to have a simplicity to it and a beauty to it, and it also has a great sort of you know it's a, it's it's a sadness and a tragedy throughout the film, but it has those bright beautiful moments. And you know we're taking the concept to death, and 
it's very important that people can somehow, which the, the book did originally, appreciate the possibilities of the beauty of death as opposed to the horrible reality of it. The, you know, the, the thought of a, a, a soul passing on to somewhere else or passing away in a beautiful, serene and peaceful way. Um, a gentle way rather than the and to contrast that against the reality of the horrifying aspects of war so I, I love the idea of a, of, a, of a juxtaposition a contrast between you know something that like that, that little town being destroyed but to hear something beautiful it's and it's really scoring it from the souls of the people who are passing on um, so that we're seeing it from their perspective I think in the bombs, the bomb site at the end, when we, you know, I used an awful lot of shots throughout where we craned up and looked down, and we were looking down on the figures we left behind at the bomb site. We see it's Rudy lying there on the ground, and Liesel bent over his his, his broken body, and um, but we go upwards again, so we also always get this feeling of there's a greater force at play here, and and it's, you know, and I don't mean religious in any way. I mean in the sense of the soul passes on to something else. And it's almost like we're looking down from heaven or we're looking down from above on what has remained. And we're almost traveling with that soul as it rises from the mortal body. Um, so it was a way to sort of somehow, because uh, I think that's emotionally what, why I made the connection with the book. It's something about the fact that um, death in a way can be a beautiful thing. It doesn't just have to be horrific or horrible or unjust or all the other adjectives to describe it. Yeah, you know, one of the questions we had, and it, this sounds like related to what you're talking about, was specifically about the scene in which a Hamel Street is bombed. And you have this really peaceful, serene sounding cue, uh, you know, against uh, content in the film that would not traditionally be thought of that way. So. Can, can you speak a little bit to that and, and what the approach was to that scene? Well, it would be so obvious to, you know, to just score the bombs landed. And and we can see that and we can hear that. And so to make it more interesting, the idea is to contrast that completely. Why just score something that we're already seeing? You know, I think the great composers always look for a subtext or something that is different to what we're seeing on screen. You know, it's, it's too much of an easy ride and a popcorn film if we just go with what we see. And sometimes it gives it another level, um, intellectually or emotionally, if we go against that and try to see something which is telling us something different because then our minds have to work in two ways. They can comprehend the pictures, they know what's happening, but a score can then take them away from that and view it from a different perspective.
So you talked about this before you, when you were sitting at the piano with John Williams and you just could not believe that you were sitting there, but I mean, how many times during this whole process did you just, you have this out of body experience where you were like, I'm working with John Williams. <laughs> um, there was quite a few, you know, those things. I remember saying to John, I, I, I was worried that, you know, that it, it might possibly become too big that the score would be, would overpower the pictures. Because he's such a great composer, I was just, I was just worried that, you know, that the two really work together and, and that, that it should keep some simplicity and innocence to the score. So John said to me, oh, I completely agree, Brian. I think, I think you're absolutely right. He said, I plan on just using a small orchestra for this because I don't see it as a really big piece. So we've turned up for the first day of recording on the Fox lot and there was an orchestra with 180 musicians in it. And I said to John, John, he sat me in the middle of the room with next to where he was conducting and I was surrounded by these musicians, because I've never done before, you know, I've done plenty of orchestras at Abbey Road and lots of other places, but I've never actually sat in the middle with the, com- with the conductor, composer. And, and I said, John, but I thought you said it was going to be a small orchestra. And he turned to me and he said, Brian, this is a small orchestra. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and then there was a couple we did uh, we recorded most of we needed to record in about four or five days I think and then we, we were coming back the, the following week because there was a couple of things he wanted to tweak he thought it could be a little bit better um, it sounded fantastic to me but you know John's such a perfectionist and he wanted to um, he wanted to just he thought it could be slightly better so we turned up again the, the, the following week to um to another recording and that time there was 220 musicians and it was like oh my lord and, and it's just you know for a man that is he's such a beautiful quiet gentle soul um but and commands so much respect he's just sort of really sitting next to him in that sort of situation you're just in awe of his his ear for detail and for his vision it's incredible when you were sitting there with the recording and then later on putting the music into the film in those specific scenes, did you find that it actually changed the dynamic of the scene? It changed the intent from what you had originally thought it would? No, it never really changed the intent. I think it just amplified it, made it more beautiful um, and closer to, you know, just polished what we'd agreed and what, and what we, um, what we both felt emotionally towards the script um, it made it better obviously without a doubt but um, it never really changed the intent because I think we always right from the outset we agreed that was the approach and that was what we wanted to do we used some of John's earliest scores to temp it uh, so we had a sort of atmosphere for the film but it, it's um it just went it was a dream in that sense you know there was no surprises in, in terms of uh well the only surprise was how beautiful it was you know it wasn't it didn't it was always the sort of way that i wanted it and john wanted it do you to remember which scores were used in the temp track i couldn't remember no <laughs> i'm sorry david they were they were pretty much all i think um there were john's john's cues um, 
John scores from. I don't know if we used. Uh, we might have used one, one or two from Schindler's List um, because there's a, quite a presence of violins here and there. I think. Um, but other than that, I, I, I can't remember because it's so long ago. And is there a, a particular part of the score that's your favorite? Um, I do. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the bombardment scene and the, the aftermath of that is really quite special, I think. But I do love uh, when the train, uh, when we see the train at the beginning and we first see Liesl in the car going through the snow-filled landscape, there's a wonderful introduction of a, just a very, it's a very simplistic and beautiful piano piece that becomes eventually, builds and becomes the theme, I think. Um, but it's, it, it's just, it just feels right for Liesl because it's it's got a beauty about it, but it's quite naive in many ways. It's got an innocence about it, um, and it's a very it, it is a very. It, it's, I, I watched it again um, not long ago, and um, I was struck by how much of a hook that is. Actually, you know, without it being meant to, meaning to, you know, I'm sure it was never designed as a hook or, or thought of that way. Was there um, any changes throughout the, the scoring process where you you listened to something and you suggested to John, well, what, I think it might be better if the music went in this direction? No, there wasn't really. I think we were in complete agreement. Um, you know, it's it's something that we, there was things that we discussed and things might have been quite so strong in some places and might have been a little bit more of an underscore here and there, but generally there was there was no real change of direction because I think we saw right away on it to begin with. And the other thing I, I was really conscious of as well is, you know, he did a he did an absolutely beautiful job. And also I had this thing where you go, how do you tell John Williams what he should be doing? You know, I had the same thing. I remember in a rehearsal once with Maggie Smith and and I was there and I thought, what am I ever going to tell Maggie Smith that she hasn't already heard, given that she's been around for like the last 50 years or whatever. So there's a, you know, with, I'm a great believer that you sort of shape something into the way that you want it. And, I, you know, there's no way I'll ever understand music. As long as any of us will understand music the way John does. So it's to embrace what he does, does and, and sort of guide that gently into what you might think is the right to do, or at least open up a discussion. But 
it was minimal because you know it, it's like if you're working with someone and you've always admired the work you love it anyway it's difficult to sort of you know there's very little of what he's done that I've ever gone oh, I'm not really so sure about that it doesn't happen so um so no it, it was it, we pretty much agreed on everything and that was the way it was you know well I you can't argue with someone who's been successful that's no. <laughs> so as of fall 2020 you're the last director to work with John Williams that wasn't Steven Spielberg or wasn't directing the Star Wars sequel trilogy. How does it feel to have that distinction? It's quite special, really, because you kind of think, you know, to be even considered in the same paragraph as, as Steven Spielberg in terms of who John would like to work with or who John's work with is something that you just don't ever contemplate. You know, you just think, why, why, would, why would he even... I, it, he doesn't need to, you know, um, but there was something obviously that um, he liked about my approach to the film that made me made him want to do it, and it, it's it's really special, you know. It's a it's a it's like one of the most. If you had a if you did have a bucket list, it would be on it. Like you say, it's just you can't. I still to this day think I'm not quite sure how that happened, but it did. You know, it's terrific. One uh, process question I had, you know, one of the characteristics of John's scores is there's a lot of subtlety in terms of, you know, he'll derive one theme from another. In the book, Thief, there are moments where he's playing themes backwards. Does he, as a director, does he walk you through kind of the you know, this is this is how I'm getting this theme from that theme. This is how I'm transforming this theme over the course of the film. Or does he just kind of let the music speak for itself and, and let you interpret it as you will? Yeah, more the latter, really. You know, uh, having a, a limited um, a limited knowledge of music myself, you know, that isn't something that I could sort of um, dissect technically or to particularly understand that um but he sort of does guide you through the process as, as what he was thinking and why he was thinking in a particular way why a theme sort of evolved um but it was always sort of in tune with what i anticipated anyway so you know it, it's it's just a delight when it comes to life and and and, and he's doing and he's audibly illustrating something that an idea that that i felt i had about the script in itself you know it's just sort of um but no i i think he's he's just he talks about it emotionally but not not huge depth i think he, he more let his themes do the talking for him thank you so much for for chatting with us and also just for making such an incredibly powerful film. Um, it's, it's definitely one of my favorites. So, uh, so thank you so much. My pleasure, David. And thank you, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was so great to talk to Brian and get those insights that only a director would give, as opposed to the previous interviews I've done on the baton, where it's the musicians who don't get to know the process before recording day. So to see kind of 
to see Brian filling in those gaps was just really informative, and I'm really appreciative of him taking the time to do that. So as Brian mentioned, he had the great opportunity to work with Oscar winner Jeffrey Rush and Oscar nominee Emily Watson. This would be the second time Williams has scored a film with Jeffrey Rush, and the third with Emily Watson. And it's interesting that all three times, Watson plays a suffering wife and mother trying her best to survive hardship. First, it was Angela's Ashes, and then in War Horse, and now The Book Thief. Yes, and Watson's performance isn't the only thing in this film that recalls Angela's Ashes. As we'll discuss, elements of the score also harken back to that score. I think both Watson and Rush gave excellent performances in this film. But the heart of the story is Sophie Nellisay, a French-Canadian actress who pulls off a great feat in holding the story together as Liesel in only her third film. So what stands out about this film is the strong performances to make this story feel lived in. By the end, you're felt to care about the residents of Himmel Street, translated to Heaven Street. And that's very important in the final act. Musically, John Williams keeps the story from getting heavy as the war continues to rage on, relying on woodwinds and piano for just about every musical moment. There is a good deal of thematic material in the score for The Book Thief, but it's not as easy to spot as it is in most John Williams scores. One of the things that strikes me about this score is how much John Williams relies on minor scales. The minor scale is a very recognizable musical phrase. Uh, I'll play it here for listeners who may not be familiar. So very familiar. I think most people, regardless of how much musical training you have, will be familiar with, with that musical phrase. And I think as a result of that familiarity, there's almost a sense of inevitability associated with it. We all know how it's going to end. And the minor quality makes it somewhat sad, of course, depending on the context. And in that sense, I think it makes sense for a film about death to use a a musical tool that has both qualities of sorrow and inevitability, very similar to death. For one example of how Williams uses minor scales in the score, we can look to the music Williams wrote for Death, who narrates the film. This theme has two components an ascending figure that I'll call, for lack of a better word, death's ostinato, and a proper theme that I'll call death's theme. Let's listen to them together. So let's start with Death's Ostinato. Uh, I'll, I'll demonstrate what we just heard on piano. This figure is really just the first few notes of a minor scale. What's interesting here is it feels a bit rushed, in part because the speed of the notes picks up. The first note is an eighth note, The next notes are 16th notes. 
and in part because William skips the fourth note in the scale and goes straight to the fifth. So that's one, two, three, five. To the extent that we feel that we're arriving at the end of the phrase early, death's ostinato might represent untimely death, which certainly abounds in this film. For the most part, this ostinato gets pretty straightforward variations in the score, but there are a few places where Williams plays it backwards, when Liesel first enters the Huberman household, when she is first granted access to a library, and when she steals a book from the remains of a Nazi book burning. Here's the backwards ostinato in that last scene. What we heard in that scene was... And if we play that backwards, we get Death's Ostinata. Perhaps playing this theme backwards is William's way of indicating the powerful forces that can counteract untimely death. Family can literally prevent this, as is the case when the family saves Max's life in the film, and books can extend one's voice beyond their physical expiration. The other big aspect of Death's music is his theme. This starts where the ostinato left off, on the fifth note of the minor scale. It bears a resemblance to a section of Mozart's Requiem Mass, which makes sense given the centrality of death in a Requiem Mass. And I'll, I'll play the theme just so everybody knows what I'm referring to. This is the section that goes... So compare Death's theme from Book Thief to this trombone line in Mozart's Requiem Mass. But my favorite rendition of this theme, which is also my favorite part of the score, is the finale, when death reveals that Liesel lived to be 90 years old. It's a gorgeous transformation of death's theme that seems to represent a peaceful acceptance of mortality. I can't help but wonder if, as an 81-year-old scoring this film, this cue represents some sense of peaceful acceptance that Williams has acquired on this topic.
You know, David, I find it very interesting that this theme points to Mozart's Requiem Mass, but doesn't use the Dies Irae theme from that same Mass, which Williams has used a lot in his career. It seems to be a little more caring and respectful of life than most composers would portray death. And that's a very good observation you made about Williams possibly pondering his own mortality with the music in this scene. So as I mentioned earlier, Liesel's journey through the film is told through her ability to read and eventually tell stories. When we first meet her, she is on the train to her new home with her mother and younger brother. But her younger brother dies on the train and he is buried near the train tracks. The gravedigger drops a book and Liesel hides it away in her coat. The death theme plays during that moment, appropriate because the book is a manual for grave digging. And then after the film title appears, a new melody takes over on the piano. We can call this the reading theme, and it'll appear every time Liesel is involved in reading throughout the first half of the movie. And once again, this theme is basically just a section of a minor scale. So if we play our minor scale again, the reading theme is just... So this is one of the happy musical themes in the film. Uh, David, why do you think Williams chose to write it in a minor mode? Great question, Jeff. Of course, only Williams can know for sure. But I think it all comes back to how he uses minor scales in the score. The reading theme is so fluid and light, especially in the way it travels down the scale and then reverses course and comes back up. It's almost as if it's defying death. I think Williams is indicating here that reading and writing, or maybe more broadly speaking, art in general, can transcend death. After all, I can listen to a Beethoven symphony today and get some insight into Beethoven's brain, his thoughts and emotions, even though he's been dead for hundreds of years. And again, for John Williams as an 81-year-old man whose life's work has been dedicated to music, I think it's a beautiful sentiment. And of course, in the context of the film, Reading and writing literally save Liesel's life. She only survives the bombing because she falls asleep while writing in the book that Max gave her in her basement. Everybody else in her house who was above ground outside of the basement dies. And my favorite rendition of the reading thing comes about 49 minutes into the movie when Liesel is dropping off laundry cleaned by her mother to the mayor's house. The wife of the mayor invites Liesel into a room of the house that is revealed to be a massive library filled with more books than Liesel could ever read. If you've seen the movie, you might feel like this is reminiscent of the scene in the animated Beauty and the Beast when Belle sees the big library in the Beast Castle, but this has a more subdued musical accompaniment.
So Liesl, of course, has a theme, and it makes its introduction as we see the train she is riding with her mother and brother. It's strange to have her theme playing now because we have not met her yet. Death is talking about himself, or is it Death is talking about itself? I don't even know if Death has a gender. But while we see the train chugging along the tracks, Death is talking. And we get introduced to her theme at that point, followed by the introduction of the reading theme. So Williams is employing his typical strategy here of putting all the main themes into the first few minutes of the film. I completely agree, Jeff. I at first thought this was also an odd choice for the film. I've come to view that opening cue as a sort of mini overture for the film. With respect to Liesel's theme, it reminds me a lot of the theme from Angela's Ashes. And you know, in our in our chat with Brian earlier today, uh, he mentioned that the film uh, had a temp track that was comprised of other John Williams scores. And so I wonder if, if one of those was Angela's Ashes. Liesel's theme is perhaps slightly more optimistic than Angela's Ashes, but it has a sense of tragedy in its minor mode. There's a lot of upward phrases, hope, answered immediately by downward turns, disappointment. Which all makes sense. The short snippet of Liesel's life that we observe in The Book Thief is full of both hope and loss. The other major character theme is a theme for Max, the Jewish man that the family is hiding from the Nazis. If that sounds familiar, it's probably because it's very similar to a theme that Williams wrote for Stepmom. Again, uh, it makes me wonder if maybe music from Stepmom was temp-tracked into this film. This is one of the more optimistic themes in the score, but even it cannot escape the tragedy of the story. And that makes sense. While Max does not die, he comes very close. And as a Jewish man living in Nazi Germany, death surrounds him. There's two ways that I see this prominence of death reflected in his theme. First, there's a couple literal quotes of death's ostinato in Max's theme. 
And so I want to I want to play that theme uh, again, and and I want to stop and highlight some of these areas where where I hear death sostenato. So let's listen to that last phrase again. If we just play that phrase. Etc. So I think you'll recognize that as that's all sonato. But if we continue going with Max's theme. again. So we literally have death's theme baked into Max's theme, which I think again just speaks to how prevalent death is in Max's life. The, the second way that I think this shows up in Max's theme is more just in the emotional construction of it. So again, you know, we have this uh, sustaining note in the melody played over descending harmonies. And to me, this sounds like somebody whose mind is set on survival, but who is surrounded by a hostile environment that drags down the prospects of survival. It's a technique that Williams has used before, for instance, in Revenge of the Sith and War Horse, and it's a really powerful dramatic effect, in my opinion. Here's a warmer version of the theme that we get when Max and Liesl reunite. I enjoyed a couple of lighter moments in the film, including this nice bonding scene between Liesl and her neighbor Rudy as they are walking home from school. Now, Rudy, throughout the whole movie, pretty much wants a kiss from Liesl, and he'll get it if he wins a running race. It's a nice little scherzo built for flutes and oboes and contains a nice flourish at the end as Rudy and Liesl slip in the snow. Another moment is the snowball fight in the basement of the Humorman home. Within the scene, it's a break from all the death and worry that's going on outside the house.
And of course, you can't help but think about the music Williams wrote for the snowball fight in Harry Potter and Prisoner of Azkaban, or at least I couldn't. It's, again, another light moment in a dark film, but that one in Prisoner of Azkaban is derived from an existing theme in the movie, while this one in The Book Thief seems to be a one-off melody. Yeah, I completely agree, Jeff, that that both of these cues offer uh, a much-appreciated lighter moment in the score. Another more optimistic part of the score is a motif that Williams uses that's derived from Max's theme. It also sounds a lot like another cue from Angela's Ashes. Uh, it's called Plenty of Fish and Chips in Heaven on the Angela's Ashes soundtrack. Uh, but anyways, I think this theme may represent the budding friendship between Liesel and Max. And that's a good point you bring up about maybe this being the friendship for Liesl and Max. But the music for uh, the scene that accompanies this music, is actually Liesl walking with Rudy to the mayor's house. So uh, I'm not sure really if, if Williams had any intention for this melody to be used for any particular person. And then, of course, the track title on the CD is New Parents in a New Home. So I'm thinking this music is for the family, Liesl's family. Um, so I don't think it, I don't know if it really attaches to anybody, but of course, like every piece of art, it's always open to interpretation. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I think that those are good points. And maybe it, to the extent that it applies to Liesl and Max, it's really only in the extent that it applies to anybody in the family that Liesl has an emotional connection to, or maybe outside the family with Rudy. Yes, Absolutely. I continue to be amazed at the music John Williams writes for the movies, even the ones that I know very well, but in particular the ones that I don't know well, like the score for The Book Thief. It shows he really has a passion for creating music, and it really shows in the way he carefully planned out the construction of the thematic material and the presentation of the music in many scenes. Like you said, baking Death's ostinato in Max's theme? That's just brilliant. Uh, so, The Book Thief didn't get much attention in the United States, 
and it brought in just $21 million after it opened in November 2013. It had a lot of competition that opening weekend, coming out just three days before the sequel to The Hunger Games and 11 days before Frozen became the big movie of 2013. And I don't think any movie made money after Frozen came out. Though The Book Thief was essentially buried in all the bigger releases of 2013, John Williams' name was not forgotten in the big award ceremonies at the beginning of 2014. Again, The Book Thief did not do well at the box office, so these nominations really did surprise me. The score was the only aspect of the film receiving any notice, getting recognized at the Golden Globes and the Academy Awards. I didn't expect this small score to be honored as the best of the year, and that was true at the Golden Globes and the Oscars. But John Williams did get some hardware for his work on The Book Thief, snagging a Grammy for Best Instrumental Composition. This was for the final cue on the soundtrack, titled The Book Thief, which offered up concert arrangements of the major themes from the film. This was not only the first time that music from a motion picture had won the Grammy for this category in five years, but it was the first time that a score had been nominated in this category in the past five years. So David, I will say that the score to The Book Thief is a score that, to me, just simply exists in John Williams's resume. But now I find the score to really have a lot more to admire in it after giving this movie another viewing and really examining the score. And thanks to you very much for helping with that. Well, thank you, Jeff, for shining a light on this uh, often forgotten score. You know, it's not my absolute favorite work by Williams, but I do think it's a beautiful score. And I think in many ways it might be one of his most personal film scores. So I was really delighted to discuss it with you. Yes, thank you again. So next up on the baton, we're, we're going big. We're going to go really big. It's going to be the score that John Williams fans and Star Wars fans had been waiting two years to hear. I'm going to discuss The Force Awakens in the next episode with Paulius Aedicus, and I hope you'll join us for that discussion. So feel free, as always, to send me an email at jeffswim at aol.com, and please, please, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes just a minute or two. Thanks for listening, and until next time, the baton is down. <laughs>